Well, and I think so often that kills the progress required. And so much of what we've done is just like action creates action and you need to put one one foot in front of the other and you got to live to fight another day. And so often people don't realize the accountability required to take action and no one else is really ready to give you the level of advice required or the rules that you need to break to get it done because they don't want that in their life. And so you have these people with great ideas and it doesn't matter the idea. Are you an overwhelmed SaaS founder ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Mays. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel Podcast, where the biggest lie in the universe is when we check the box that says, I have read and agree to the terms and conditions. <laughs> I'm your host, Jeff Maines. <laughs> Ever done that? Like, I don't know, yesterday? <laughs> well, we have a really unique episode for you today. Being in tech, you've probably heard of Moore's Law, right? Prediction of how fast technology advances. Well, have you ever heard of Cole's Law? Well, sure. You know, it's finely shredded cabbage with mayo or vinaigrette, right? Goes great with fried chicken. Good old coleslaw. Now, a little joke. But uh, what do you get when you combine food and technology with drive, grit, and determination? Well, our guest today will feed your mind, soul, and body too because he is the founder, disruptor, and innovator of the clean food movement. Well, in last week's episode, we talked with Eric Rind, founder and CEO of Imagine BC. Eric is a serial entrepreneur. He creates companies as the main inventor and technologist, and Imagine BC is one of those. So if you're wondering about blockchain or you know exactly what it is and want to hear about its potential impact to personal data and privacy, then this is a great episode for you. So if you missed it, go back and give it a listen. Well, my guest this week is Greg Vetter founder and CEO of Tessie Mays, a flavor-forward organic fresh food company considered to be a lead innovator and disruptor in the clean food movement. He'll tell the story of how an idea became a family business and grew to be the number one organic salad dressing brand among all of the competitors that have been around for what seems like ages. You know, trailblazers have to continue innovating to solve new problems, and Greg's journey was no different. When you make amazing products without preservatives, additives, chemicals, and a bunch of other weird stuff nobody can pronounce, you have to do things differently, including your manufacturing processes. Well, Greg is more than just food and tech. He values family, and I really appreciate that about him. And along with that family is the somewhat lost concept these days of a wholesome family dinner, you know, where we sit down around a table, eat, talk, and connect with each other. In fact, he delivered a TED Talk entitled The Dinner Habit, The Recipe for Change. And it's fantastic. We'll be sure and link it in the show notes. But welcome a CEO who is elevating our food quality and family relationships. Give it up for Greg Vetter. Well, hey, Greg, welcome to SAS Fuel. I am happy to be here. 
I'd love to hear a little bit about where you came from and your brand story with Tessame. So I'm the oldest of three boys, and my mom needed to get us to eat our vegetables. And so when I was about <laughs> eight, I guess, she came up with this lemon garlic dressing. And it was just olive oil, lemon, garlic, mustard, and sea salt. And for the first time, we just ate all of our salad. We were taking bread. We were wiping the dressing up with the bread. And she was like, I think I'm onto something. So every night from that point on, she made that dressing and we commented on it, right? Because sometimes she would switch the oil. Sometimes she would switch the lemon. Sometimes she would switch the mustard. And it was always, hey, go back to this or add a little bit more salt. And so probably by high school, it was perfect. And uh, so we all played sports and she brought it to all the tailgates and all the holidays. She made it for other people. And then I graduated college and I moved into a townhouse with my wife and I was playing professional lacrosse. I was selling insurance. I didn't want to do that anymore. And so I would go home at lunch and I would stand on my head and try and figure out what I wanted to do with my life. (laughs) And so one day I came home and this two liter bottle of dressing was missing which you don't misplace a two liter bottle of salad dressing. And so I started calling my neighbors and I finally got to a guy last one on my list. And he had woke up, was jonesing for it, hopped on the scooter, came over, broke in, took it, was eating a salad surprisingly enough. And so I sat there very puzzled and I thought to myself, what kind of man steals another man's salad dressing? And so <laughs> that's great. And I said, I am going to start a business and I'm going to sell salad dressing. And so I tested it first with my wife and I called her. And I'm like, Hey, I'm going to quit my job and start a salad dressing company. And she goes, that's going to work. This is a really great idea. Then I called my mom cause I needed the recipe and I'm like, Hey, I'm going to start a salad dressing company. And she goes, that's never going to work. <laughs> <laughs> and so I said, well, give me the recipe and If it works, we'll go into business together. And if not, you know, no harm, no foul. And so I started calling the local Annapolis Whole Foods and I got a meeting and uh, I went in and pitched them. So you did it the way that that people would tell you not to do it, because that's not how you get shelf space, right? (laughs) Well, and we weren't even a company, you know. So when I got the meeting, the guy was like, meet me on Friday around lunchtime. And we're not a, there's no name, there's no bottle, there's nothing. And I call my mom, I'm like, I need you to make the greatest batch of salad dressing that you've (laughs) ever made in your life. No pressure. No pressure. And she's like, well, what are you going to put it in? I'm like, don't worry about that. And so I put it in a Tupperware container with some crunchy romaine lettuce. And I walked in, the guy was like, so where's your packaging? And I'm like, it's lunchtime, man, you're busy. I brought you a salad. And so he looks at me like I'm crazy, takes a piece of lettuce out, licks the dressing off, and goes, whoa, you have something really special here. You need to call the regional office. So I did the same thing for the regional office. They handed me 200 pages of food manufacturing paperwork and go, fill this out, and you can get in for the grand opening of the new Annapolis Whole Foods, May 1st, 2009. Wow. So then I began Googling how to be a food manufacturer. (laughs) <laughs> and so that took a little while and uh, that had its, its own set of obstacles and hurdles, but uh, pulled that off in time for the grand opening of the new Annapolis Whole Foods in 2009, set up a demo with a local lettuce company 
And we ended up that week selling out. We set a national sales record for Whole Foods. We sold 650 bottles out of one store of one SKU. Wow. And so, so that kind of told us, all right, people really like this. We can probably scale this a little bit if we can figure out how to maintain quality. That is pretty amazing. I love that you just took action. I think that's one of the things that really sets you apart from a lot of people that have good ideas out there, but you acted on it and didn't wait to, to go ask and get expert advice on how should I start a salad dressing company? You just went and did it. Well, and I think so often that kills the progress required. And so much of what we've done is just like action creates action and you need to put one step one foot in front of the other, and you got to live to fight another day. And so often people don't realize the accountability required to take action. And no one else is really ready to give you the level of advice required or the rules that you need to break to get it done because they don't want that in their life. And so you have these people with great ideas and it doesn't matter the idea, right? Everybody's got a recipe. Everybody's got an invention. Everybody's got an app. Everybody's got this. And their problem is they go and ask advice. Should I do this? And everybody goes, it'll never work, right? Thanks, mom. Yeah. Well, and it was, <laughs> and you have to be unreasonable, you know, like you have to, be able to fail publicly. And I think playing athletics, my brothers and I talked about this on our own podcast about you have to be able to fail publicly and be okay with that, which sports really helped, right? Because you're always in front of your peers in a big kind of setting. And so if you have a bad game, everybody sees that. You got to deal with that. Right, And so if you're not prepared to go out there on game day, then, you know, maybe you're not going to be prepared to take that action because you don't want to hear that no. And we're not rewarded for failure either, right? We're rewarded in school for perfection. Right. And that's not what the journey is about at all. It's about how often can you pick yourself up off of the ground and get up and do it again the next day with a smile on your face. And if you can do that, you can do anything. Yeah, absolutely. Resilience. And that's something that, is that something you learn from sports? Yeah. I mean, I think for sure sports and also I think being an oldest sibling, you experience everything first. You know, there was a comedian who was an oldest. I got to go back and find out who it was, but it was like, he was the oldest and his joke was like his mom had a checklist and it was like, don't throw brick at kid's head. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, so my younger brother was really smart and doesn't have brain damage. <laughs> <laughs> and so for me, I was just always willing to kind of go out and experience stuff for the first time because I didn't have any older siblings to look up to to say, yeah, that's dumb. What you're doing is dumb. <laughs> I'm an oldest as well, and sometimes I joke about that same kind of thing. I was the experiment. Exactly. And, and maybe that's why I'm an entrepreneur is because I'm still experimenting. Yes. Yes. Right. Oh, I love that. Being able to fail publicly. In doing that, I mean, you've, you've done a number of things. I mean, professional lacrosse, sold insurance, and then 
you know, started this company. What other things have you done or tried and, and been willing to do that and put yourself out there? Well, I mean, kind of everything in my life was for the first time. And it was without, not without parental support, but it was without, like there was no helicopter parenting going on, right? My dad's from Southern Ohio. My mom's from Virginia. I chose lacrosse. They didn't even know what it was. They sent <laughs> right. me for the first day for tryouts. And this is not a joke. My, I'm in fifth grade. My dad drops me off, right, for signups. Drops me off. Doesn't walk me up to the table. <laughs> I don't have equipment. <laughs> he drops me off with a stick and goes, I'll see you in two hours. <laughs> so I walk up. I'm like, hey, you know, Greg Vetter here signing up. And they go, where's all your equipment? I'm like, I don't have any. They're like, well, how are you going to play? I'm like, I don't know. And so they found me a helmet in Lost and Found, two different gloves, but I didn't have any other pads on. So I had to run around and spear people with my head, which is probably not great for my neck. And it again, it was one of these things where I was willing to just go do something that I wanted to do kind of independently, always managing, I guess, my own progress. And so again, sports in high school and sports in college and, you know, starting little random businesses in college and, you know, doing all that stuff. You're just kind of always in the eyes of your peers, but I never cared. I have a very, very low social recognition score there's like a personality test called the PRF and it breaks down the core personality traits of a person and then it maps it as a percentile to everyone that's ever taken the test. And so basically anything above 30 or below 70 is normal in that range. Anything above 70 and below 30 are extreme. So it doesn't really matter if you're 71 or 99. It's still an extreme personality trait on the high end, and it's still an extreme personality trait on the low end. And so my social recognition score is like a six. Wow. I just don't, I don't care, right? And maybe that's just be, from failing so many times over and over and over again and not caring about other people's opinions during that process. And that has actually been very helpful building something or running teams, especially when people may be older than you, right? Or your peer. Sure. I just don't need a lot of that. That makes sense. So as you continue to build a business, was it you know just a rocket ride once you had that initial Whole Foods store or were there other bumps along the way? There's been a lot of bumps, you know, it's definitely the problem with us is we had to start a manufacturing plant to maintain the quality of the product because no one had ever made clean salad dressing before. And so we were looking for co-packers. Nobody would do it without thickening agents. So my brothers and I decided to start a manufacturing plant of salad dressing when we were only in like 60 Whole Foods stores. Who does that? Right. right. Which is like, <laughs> in retrospect, you're just like, and I understand that we couldn't find anybody to do it. 
and we tried everything and it was that it was basically that moment or die. But now you look back on it. And again, this goes back to the expert thing. Don't do that. You idiot. (laughs) (laughs) What are you thinking? But in doing that, we were able to create a differentiator. We were able to sell that differentiator over time. And then when things got sketchy during COVID and everything else, we had all of our own employees in manufacturing and we just kept cranking and there were no issues. Uh, But you have to build it first, which is really difficult when you're trying to scale something. So everything for us was like this insane, you know, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. And then you kind of, you know, you go down to the depths of hell and then you come back up and you're a little better and you just keep almost spiraling upward. The sequel. Yeah. (laughs) And you're just like, oh my God. So yeah, there were kind of big clumps of growth and then there were big clumps of kind of increasing capacity and in, in building out the infrastructure, hoping that the growth would continue. And if it didn't, then you're, you're dealing with a bump in the road just like anybody else. But yeah, it has not been a straight shot upward. You know, it, it has been a battle for 13 years. I'm sure. Well, one of the things you're taking on an industry that really has had very little disruption for a long time. But I think we've seen a number of other new competitors come in the market in the last 10 years for sure. Yeah. And a lot of them have already sold, which is, you know, it makes it tough for the independent guy, which is us. But that's fine. You know, life isn't easy. The building a brand isn't easy. And so you just keep, you know, grinding away and try and stick to your core values and and do the things that you believe are right. So how did you decide what the brand was going to be about and and how did you communicate that out to the the team as you continue to grow? So in the beginning, it was just like, let's make this one dressing the best in the world, right? And it's our mom's dressing and there's five ingredients and none of these food trends had happened yet. So it was really just kind of this story of it tastes better than everything else. It's only five ingredients. Three brothers have taken their mom's dressing. Please buy it. And then we scaled that into more dressings. And then, you know, we just continued to fight the fight. And every time that someone tried to squash the growth, almost like the market allowed us to continue because then all the food trends and the, you know, food tribes began. So you had in the beginning, you had the paleo movement. Then you had whole 30. Then you had keto. Then you had vegan. Then you had low sodium. Then you had gluten-free. Then you had this, then you had that. Right. And so the funny part about our product is it just, it is a part of all of those because it's so simple. Right. And so no matter what the big guys were trying to do, all the while this kind of like organic clean eating movement was happening. And so we were a part of that and kind of leading that clean eating charge. And I think that's really interesting that you already had that in the then you know the market 
kind of realized that that was something that was was good. I mean, five ingredients is fantastic. Yeah, and and that's we don't need all of the other additives and preservatives and thickening agents and and all that stuff. Yeah, it's it's simple. It's it's fantastic. Well, and there's just there's interesting ways to do things that are still healthy, right? And like our creamy dressings are a great example. We emulsify them with egg instead of the dairy or whatever weird powders or thickening agents are in there. And that came because we wanted to stay kind of a clean eating brand and we wanted to avoid as many allergens as we could possibly avoid because we wanted zero barriers to purchase it, right? We wanted someone to be attracted to the packaging, read the story, read the ingredient panel, and then have the taste speak for itself. And not everybody does that, right? They want kind of a quick win and they don't care if it's good and they're going to figure out some quick wins and, and that's how they scale. We really wanted somebody to like come into it, believe in it, it be a part of your grocery list and, and move on, you know, stick with the brand forever. So how do you build that brand preference or brand affinity? You know, yeah, I think it's just for me, what I've found is it just really needs to be authentic because we live in a society where everybody is looking for a crack to expose something. And they're looking to destroy something just to do it, you know, like the idle hands, I guess. Sure. And so what you've seen is you've seen these brands that e either attach themselves to a trend that goes away, which we never wanted to do. We wanted it to be timeless. And then it also had to be authentic because I think when people get into it, the reason these brands kind of go up and they go down is people get really excited and they realize, uh, well, Heinz owns it. I don't really care anymore, you know, or, you know, this person owns it or they don't care anymore and they've sold out or they cheapen their ingredients or whatever it is. And so when we were thinking about the brand, it needed to be timeless. It needed to be scalable, right? It couldn't be regional specific, and it needed to be authentic. People needed to be able to get into it and go, oh, wow, like I can't believe that this story is real and this is their mom and there she is and she answers the customer service emails and <laughs> the youngest brother makes it. And, you know, so I just, I think that that's really important for consumer packaged good brands because you're battling, right? Especially in dressing or condiments, it's a sea of bottles and jars. So why is someone going to stop and buy yours when they've got 4 million choices? And I think that comes down to like there needs to be an emotional connection and the authenticity or, or truth behind, behind that needs to reinforce that over and over and over again. That makes a lot of sense. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to ask Greg about diversifying products and going big against bigger competitors right after this. You ever feel like you're in uncharted waters or maybe wish there was a checklist or clear path to follow for your stage of growth? Well, we are one. Champion Leadership Group helps SaaS founders scale from $1 million to $10 million to $20 million and well beyond. Only one in 40,000 companies grows to $10 million in revenue. 
The rest stay small or die along the trail. Building a business is treacherous if you go alone. Instead, travel with experienced SaaS founders and expert guides who help chart your course to consistent results, impact, and freedom while providing support every step of the way. Create your free SaaS growth map at championleadership.com. Welcome back to SaaS Fuel. My guest today, Greg Vetter, founder and CEO of Tessa May. And Greg, tell me a little bit about how you decided to go from one SKU where you started. At what point did you decide to diversify and make other products? So it's actually a funny story. So, you know, our mom only made one dressing. <laughs> and so we <laughs> I was like, now what? <laughs> right. And so we tried to sell it kind of to all the regions of Whole Foods. And so we were trying to sell it to the Northeast region and they were like, we're not bringing in one dressing. So we went back to uh, the Mid-Atlantic region to the director of produce at the time, Matt Ray, kind of defeated, you know, hey, the Northeast didn't take it. We need to find other stuff. And he goes, well, I got a good idea. Why don't you make more dressings and I'll buy them? (laughs) And we're like, you're a genius. <laughs> and we're like, which ones? And he goes, I don't know. So my brothers and I were doing demos in the grocery stores. We did that for years. And we just started asking all the customers what they wanted. Hey, so you're buying, this is our lemon garlic. What else would you like? And they're like, balsamic. We're like, okay. Cracked pepper. All right, that sounds cool. We did a soy ginger for a while that was our number one skew. And then that kind of just fell off when the clean eating movement happened. But all of the development we had from an R&D perspective was people saying, you should do this. And so then we would go and see if we could make it the best. And then if it tasted better than everything else that you've ever tried, then we would launch it. And so then that happened for a while. And then really the growth really started happening when we were able to develop a clean, great tasting ranch dressing. And so when we did that, you know, America loves ranch dressing, any variety of it. Without a doubt. Right. It's like, it's my family's favorite. We still love lemon garlic, but like my kids eat ranch dressing. And so when we were able to, to do that, that's really when we started kind of winning over everybody, right? Lemon garlic's great, balsamic's great, you know, all the vinaigrettes are great, but creamy dressings are like 68% of the salad dressing category. And so we needed to figure that out, which we did, and then it started going really well. And really good, too. Yeah. I mean, if it doesn't taste good, I mean, I don't even know why we're doing it, right? Like, that is the only purpose of something being in a bottle and being bought, in my opinion. Like, what are we doing? If it doesn't taste good, why are you doing it? And for us, it just has to, if someone tries it, they will buy it because it tastes better than everything else. Without a doubt. And something I don't want to miss out on this. One of the things you said a minute ago that I think is really important is that you actually spent time in the stores, you and your brothers actually doing demos. So tell me a little bit more about that and kind of the thought process behind it. So one of my first jobs was I was working for like a new construction community business and I was sitting in a model home, you know, giving out information 
and there were 12 models of this community, but I want to say like 95% of the people bought one of the three models they could walk through. And so if they could go in and walk through it and experience it, that's what they bought, right? They tried it, so they bought it. And so when we first started, we set up a demo and we blew the doors off of it because I could tell the story. I could explain what's going on with the dressing. And so then I went to Whole Foods and I said, hey, you know, I really love doing these demos. It's very effective for moving product. How many can I do in a week? I go, well, you can do as many as you want. I'm like, well, why doesn't everybody do this? And they're like, I don't know. They just don't want to do it. I'm like, so you're telling me I can come in here, set up a table and do demos in the store. They're like, yeah. I'm like, this is amazing. So we set up demos and we figured out kind of the highest trafficked shopping days. So it was Friday afternoons, all day Saturday, all day Sunday, Monday afternoons. Sometimes Thursday afternoons, but not really. And so my brothers and I would put up these demo kits, right? Had a bowl, lettuce, aprons, napkins, the whole deal. Table, go in, set it up, and tell the story. Every person we told it to was, they were in. And so not only did we have an understanding of the success of the product, what, what, the, what the consumer liked and didn't like, But we could also get real-time feedback on, you know, hey, we have an idea for a new flavor. What are your thoughts on this? Hey, here's our new marketing campaign. What are your thoughts on this? And whether or not the people's opinions are right or wrong, it's still the consumer that's going to be in there buying your stuff. And so when you get into more traditional marketing methods, uh, you know, you get farther and farther and farther away from just like the initial gut reaction of a person walking into a store or experiencing a product. Right. And the further you get away, the less you know. And so going into the store and just hearing what people say, it doesn't, again, it doesn't matter if it's right or wrong and not all the times it's not always right, but you really get an understanding of, wow, people really like the fact that the ingredient panel is simple or there's no thickening agents in it, or they love the freshness of the tape, you know? And so then you go, okay, if that's happening here in this region, it'll probably happen somewhere else. So it really allowed us to realistically plan growth because we had a really good understanding of what the consumer was looking for in real time. That's really important. One of the things I talk about in my book is being able to market and use the words of your target audience, of your ideal prospects, your ideal clients. And so when you're that close to them and you're hearing those, you're really picking up exactly how they would frame it. Not how we think of it as manufacturers or owners or developers, but how do they think about it? How do they talk about it? What are the words that they use? And I think that's just brilliant in how you did that. Well, and people don't want to do it. It's beneath them, right? It's hard. It's Well, one, it's hard. It takes weekends. It takes all your weekends. (laughs) Yeah. And it's also, I never felt like it was embarrassing, but people did. 
Sure. You know, I remember running into a a kid I went to college with, and he thought I was like down on my luck. You know, I'm I'm working <laughs> handing out samples for this random salad dressing company, and he's like, "I'll buy a couple bottles, man." I was like, "Okay, <laughs> make it four. <laughs> buy four go. for me." And you know, people don't like that. They don't like doing that type of grunt work. And we never viewed it as grunt work. We viewed it as this is the most direct path for a consumer to hear what we're doing and try what we're selling. And so it just made sense. And it really does that you're, you're out there willing to do that and spending time with them. And, and I think you're exactly right. People do think that it's beneath them. But when you're willing to do what your competition is not, yes, that was open to everybody. Right. But you were the ones that were there and willing to do that. And, and that's one of the things that make you successful. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so anybody can do this? Yeah. Oh, okay. And again, because you didn't know what was possible, right. you didn't know what you were not supposed to do I know. or how everybody else did it, then you blazed your own trail. Yeah. So what is it like competing with the, the big brands? And you said there have been some other startups that have been acquired, and, and we've seen that. You know, how is that different in building something just to, to sell it or flip it or a quick out versus really building a brand for the long term and competing with the big guys? It is rewarding doing what we're doing. It's hard, and it'll get very frustrating because you'll have a competitor sell to a big guy and then the big guy gets to use all of their distribution power to just put it everywhere. And so you're out fighting the fight, you know, <laughs> store by store, meeting by meeting. And the next thing you know, you have a competitor that's got like eye level 14 variety wide, beautiful shelf space. And you're just like, oh, <laughs> but. Again, at the end of the day, you can put whatever you want there. And they may get a sale one time. But when we go head-to-head with anybody, we win. Because it tastes better. Right? Like, at the end of the day, you can have every call-out you want. It's this. It's organic. It's gluten-free. If it doesn't taste good, nobody cares. And so, you know, this journey has turned into like almost a brand awareness journey because we need more people to go, yeah, I'm going to try the ranch or the habanero ranch or the whatever, because then when they try it, they're never going to eat normal ranch dressing ever again. And so we've seen college kids do it. We had little kids, norm, adults, you know, everybody grew up dipping carrots in frickin' Hidden Valley Ranch. And that is like the standard owned by Clorox, which is gross. <laughs> and, <laughs> and But in the grand scheme of things, when you try our ranch versus theirs, you taste theirs and you're like, that tastes like chemicals. I don't like this anymore. I used to think that I liked it, but I hadn't experienced what ranch is supposed to taste like. And so if you deliver again on the quality side, the rest will take care of itself. So what advice would you have for entrepreneurs that are in early stage and really working to to grow and scale? Trust your gut. 
go beat the streets, you know, go, go get your hands dirty, go for the example of a product, go demo it. And we would do these interesting cycles where we would say, okay, I don't want to tell no one tell the story because for so long we felt like people were only buying it because we were selling it. Right. Like, here's my mom's dressing, please. (laughs) (laughs) And so then we're like, is it really the taste that's winning people over? And so we said, don't talk about the story at all. Just talk about the ingredients. That's it. And so what you'll find if you're just kind of quiet and listen is whether or not your product has the ability to be successful. It's like, I don't want to be convinced Pretend you're a consumer that's a, you know, pretend you're my wife who is open to new stuff, right? She'll buy something just on packaging alone, but she's quick to taste it and go, this is trash or this has the ability to be something and she doesn't need to be convinced and she doesn't want to hear about it. And so when you're trying to scale something, be that blunt with yourself, Like go find people that are going to be honest with you and say, this is not what you think it is. And here's why, you know, I had a guy send me a sauce, right? Everybody's got a sauce. Sure. Everyone loves it, man. I got the packaging. I'm going to scale it. You know, a friend of a friend said, you'll, you'll tell me how it is. I go, well, here's the problem. You're only asking your friends and they don't want to hurt your feelings. So you send me this. I'm going to tell you what I think for real. I don't care if I hurt your feelings or not. And he goes, that's what I want. I'm like, okay, cool. So I try it. It's okay. Would I bet my house on it? No. And and so that was the conversation I had with him. I'm like, listen, man, it's good. It's not special. Like anybody in a grocery store can find this even if they don't pick up your product, right? The rest of the products on the shelf are very similar to this. There's no reason this should be in a jar. And so you need to figure out why someone is going to spend six bucks of their hard-earned dollars on this. Because right now there's no reason. The packaging is not good and the product is just okay. And he was like, I actually really appreciate that because everyone's telling me all of this is like, the best. I'm like, cause they don't want to hurt your feelings for these startups and these people like go find people that are going to tell you the truth because you don't want to be banking your life on something that maybe isn't good. The great part about our dressing initially, it was like people were beating down our door for every holiday. Hey, I don't want a gift. Just have your mom make me this dressing. And you're like, Oh, I mean, okay, geez. And so like we knew people liked it. We just didn't know how much. Well, apparently it was good enough to steal. Exactly. Right. (laughs) So that's the type of stuff that I think founders of the early stage scene, they're afraid to get that feedback. They don't want to be wrong. Right. They don't want to hear that their baby's ugly. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. That is funny. 
we all know there are ugly babies out there, but not mine. Uh, you know, exactly. Somebody else has one, but not mine. Yes, that yeah. is hilarious. Sebastian <laughs> Maniscalco has a really funny stand-up about how every kid today is special <laughs> versus when he was a kid. He's like, my parents called it like it is. <laughs> Well, so now after all this time, is your mom now convinced that this is a good idea and going to make it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think she just likes that the brothers are still working together and happy, you know? That's awesome. And But yeah, I mean, she is a funny person where she is definitely probably proud about it, but you know. I'm sure she is. She has to be. <laughs> Maybe. So how has it been working in a, a family business, you know, working with family and, and brothers and, and your mom is, is involved in the business? In the beginning, it was a lot of trying to figure out who we were, right? We knew each other, but we didn't really understand why we did the things that we did. Right. So not only did I have my brothers, I had my wife. And, you know, here are these people that are all very different, but all very similar, but we don't know why or how. So we did a lot of kind of personality work, you know, bringing in specialists to say, okay, here's your CVI, here's your, you know, predictive index, here's your PRF, here's this, here's that, here's this. And it was very, very helpful because what they, one of the doctors said that looked and did like an offsite training session was like, you guys aren't a management team, you're a gang. Everybody has super high achievement. Everybody has super high aggression. Everybody has super high endurance Everyone has low, you know, empathy. (laughs) And so everybody was, I'm right. And so you had to, as a CEO, I had to figure out how can I be a good leader while not stepping on their toes because they didn't want that at all. Sure. Which is fine because I don't like micromanaging people anyway. And, but that stuff was very clarifying And it helped us understand who were rule followers, who weren't, like whose endurance score was similar, whose wasn't, right? And so then you you knew when someone like needed to go home, okay, this is how they're hardwired. This isn't them quitting. They just need to go recharge. That stuff is helpful, especially when you're in a family setting, because the good part about that is the trust component. You can divide a business into its critical functions and know someone is there, you know, protecting and has an ear to the ground and isn't trying to be counterproductive, which, you know, I think the statistic is 29 out of 30 consumer packaged good brands fail. That's a lot. That is. And, but if you can divide and conquer with people that you trust and care about, you know, your probability and percentage increase of, of success drastically goes up. That makes sense. Well, where can people find out more about you and about Tessa May online? TessieMays.com. And the only social 
media platform I'm on is LinkedIn and that's it. (laughs) (laughs) We'll make sure and link all of that and uh, Tessie May and the, the site in the show notes as well. Really appreciate you being on SAS Fuel. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks again to Greg for coming on the show and sharing your insights and resources. Learn more about Greg at tessiemays.com. As always, all links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. Please subscribe and follow us at sasfuel.com or your favorite podcast app. Big shout out to VJ over at Next99. He said he was enjoying the show on Spotify. So I love to hear your feedback. So give us a shout out on social media. Tell your friends to check out the show. Uh, They'll love the show and they'll think that you're a genius because you told them about it. So we're getting some great momentum. I'll have a big announcement here in the next few weeks about a very cool expansion to the show. What could it be? You know, I'm really excited. I want to tell you now and I can in just a few weeks. So come back and, uh, and be ready for that because I'm really excited about the direction that we're going there. Well, join us next week for our conversation with Lisiana Carter, founder of Grow AI. It's a chatbot agency that designs automated conversations to help businesses like you serve clients and convert more followers into buyers using the dialogue-driven approach. Liz is a great example of how the entrepreneurial journey is a bumpy ride. And, you know, it is for a lot of us. So next week, we have a raw, real conversation, and I have so much respect for Liz and her tenacity. She is an overcomer and has built a tremendous SaaS company and shares great lessons with us next week. So come back and check it out. So until we meet again, as always, enjoy the journey.